This work really helps me to focus in on this question of what are the conditions we need for peace? We need to learn how to live with each other in a way that's sustainable, that is healthy, that we can be happy with 100 years from now. If we make our guesses of what the next 10, 20 years look like, we know we need tools for healing. We know we need tools for, for building peace. That's what's at the forefront of my mind. And I'm trying to see how the tools and opportunities I have at my disposal can help me move towards that question. But really it's, I think, a collective mission we all need to hold. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with contemplative researcher and social activist Juan Santojo. Juan is a rising star in the field, and as we'll hear in today's show, even though he's still fairly early in his career, he already has quite a range of experience, interests, and accomplishments. In his undergraduate work, he studied the neurophenomenology of meditation. That's an approach championed by Francisco Varela, it's come up in the show a number of times, where you bring first-person information from the participant about their experience into more traditional objective measures in neuroscience research. Juan then went on to develop a contemplative intervention for ex-combatants in Colombia, his home country. And we talk about that quite a bit in the episode. He's also a co-founder of the Black Lotus Collective, an organization aimed at challenging systems of oppression by grounding in contemplative practice and community. Juan is now studying for his PhD in brain and cognitive sciences at MIT, and he's interested in understanding the factors that are needed for peace and healing, both in the brain and in the world. I chatted with Juan earlier this spring about a lot of this. We start with his path into contemplative research and his connection with Willoughby Britton and Judd Brewer, also previous guests on the podcast. And we touch on his early exposure to neurophenomenology and some of the findings from that research. Juan then shares about his work in Colombia, developing a contemplative intervention with ex-combatants who are reintegrating into society following the peace accord there. This is really an excellent example of community-engaged research where you work with the communities you're trying to help. And we talk about some of the components of the program and how he integrated indigenous Colombian practices that connect with land and ancestors. He also shares how the ex-combatants really valued learning skills to work with difficult emotions they face, like grief, anger, and shame, and also how they began to approach self-forgiveness as they work through peace and reconciliation processes within their communities. That gets us into a discussion of the general lack of body and land-based practices in the West, and also a larger discussion of how oppressive systems impact the sense of self. And as we end, Juan reflects on why contemplation matters for justice and equity work and his current approach to investigating what is needed for peace. I think Juan, in a really powerful and beautiful way, represents this intersection and actually also integration of research, contemplation, and action that's at the heart of contemplative science. And his central message about peace feels particularly relevant today. I hope you're inspired by this conversation as much as I was. It's a great pleasure to share with you Juan Santojo. Well, I'm joined today by Juan Santojo. Juan, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks, Wendy. It's great to join you guys. 
So I'm really looking forward to uh, exploring your experiences in this field because they have been quite varied and really interesting. I'd love to start with just hearing how you got interested in the contemplative world and meditation to begin with. Was that something that was part of your childhood or did that come later? Yeah, that's a great place to start. My mind right away goes to um, my time at Brown. I think I think that was a, a pivotal time. You know, when I arrived at college as an undergrad, I you know I definitely did not know this world existed. Um, I think you know I had consumed whatever content is in popular media about meditation as a kid, um, and towards like my late teenage years, I think was when I first started encountering very simple things about Buddhism online. I struggled with some heavy cycles of depression when I was in my teenage years and kind of coming out of that. Like I was kind of just poking around wildly at, you know, what is out there about grief and anger? Um, and, and I kind of encountered that briefly. Um, I think at the same time, I had always been interested in, um, you know, medicinal approaches to, to a spiritual life, uh, the indigenous grounded psilocybin and psychedelics. And, and so that interest always was there. Coming into college, I, I had no idea what I was going to study. I, you know, I, my family uh, was not from this country. We didn't know at all. We, I was raised just by my mom, uh, my mom and my sibling. And we, we didn't know what the college world looked like, what it involved, what the paths there were. I didn't really know what grad school was or that research existed. Um, and so, so coming into Brown, I, I didn't know what I was going to study. Um, I knew very much on my mind was mental health. Uh, growing up in in kind of the communities I grew up in in Boston, uh, just the impacts of undercared for communities were present. Um, I th it, that was one of the big contributors to the grief and depression I felt in my teenage years. And I kind of knew I was like, I, I want to work on this. I want to be around mental health work and see what's out there. And so I started off at Brown taking, uh, you know, Brown was a, a great container for me because it allows a lot of flexibility. Um, and so I kind of just took a mix of psychology, philosophy classes uh, and religious studies classes in there as well, uh, which, you know, without knowing it, I was kind of already stepping towards a contemplative field. Right. Yeah, that's the good mix for <laughs> contemplative research. Exactly. Yeah. And kind of coming into contact with some good friends, you know, a, a few years above me, I started hearing about the contemplative studies classes at Brown. Oh, great. And this was around what year? Because Brown was one of the first universities to have a contemplative studies focus. Yeah. Um, my first class was actually with Kathy Kerr. It was uh, meditation uh, and the brain. Um, and it was my fall semester. This would be 2011, uh, where Kathy had just started. It might actually have been the first semester Kathy taught at Brown. Yeah, that was the pretty early days of those programs. Yeah, and I, I, and I think I was sensing, you know, I, I liked the psychology and and the, the science of it. So that's why that class sounded cool. It was like, great, science and meditation. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that class, the next semester, I took Hal Roth's Intro to Contemplative Studies class, where where I really got my start to meditation. Um, and and it was kind of, the, you know, that, that semester with Kathy, semester with Hal, and then a friend connected me to uh, Willoughby Britain's lab, where I worked, started working that summer. And I would say kind of, I guess, that combination and working with Will that summer uh, is what really made it all click. I think working with Will and having Will welcome me into her lab that summer was pivotal. Um, it was where I really first saw what research looked like, 
Um, and where I first saw that research could be used to really guide uh, transformative interventions, transformative work, uh, where you could go from an intervention and from basic science to trying to enact new models for how we're treating things in the world uh, and critiquing yeah. those models as well. Uh, so I, I think that's when it clicked. I was like, this is awesome. This seems like it can have some impact. Um, the meditation was clicking uh, and it was kind of just that was helping everything kind of combine. Um, and that, that's that's kind of how it all started. Did you find when you said the meditation was clicking or, or working for you, can you say more about personally, experientially what you were noticing? Yeah, I, I can kind of remember some of the first moments practice started clicking when I was catching myself off the cushion in one of those ruminative loops uh, that were classic depression and very characteristic of the depression I was experiencing at the time, where you're just in this negative feedback loop. Um, and I, I think it was, I think that was kind of one of the moments that convinced me, like, invest in this, put, put my time into mm -hmm. this, put some discipline into this. Because I, I caught myself and interrupted it. And it was one of those early fruits that I think many people catch uh, off the cushion and on the cushion. Right. Yeah. I think that summer as well, the other big thing that was clicking was just, uh, I don't know why I came upon it or, or what pointed me in this direction, but I, I knew, you know, the loving kindness practices felt good. I think they feel good for, for a lot of people. Um, and, and, and I was pointed to the Bodhisattva's uh, Path of the Way. And so I kind of devoted that summary to, I was like, I'm going to practice with this book. Um, and I think that helped also ground it in, in the tradition and in some discipline. So I, I think I, I would say it kind of clicked in those ways. Uh, beyond that, I had no idea what I was doing as a student. And adapting to Brown was difficult. It was a very different cultural environment than the one I had grown up in. And I think the, the kind of the other element in which the practices clicked for me was in just helping me find some stability underneath me in that new environment. Mm -hmm. uh, it just kind of gave me the, the stability, the discipline that then helped everything move forward. So then through your undergrad time there at Brown, you actually were involved in quite a bit of research efforts, uh, both with Willoughby and with Kathy Kerr, and her name has come up a number of times on different episodes of the podcast. Do you want to share about any of that, uh, the studies that you were involved in, um, even as an undergrad then? Yeah, just being in Willoughby's lab environment was really important in those first days for me. Uh, and it was actually Will, who I can forever be grateful to her. She recommended me to work on a study. She asked me one day, hey, do you want to help analyze some data for a study? And I was like, yeah, of course. Uh, and it ended up being this project with Jake Davis, with Judd Brewer, and where Kathy Kerr started mentoring me uh, to analyze some neurofeedback data they had where they were doing this really cool uh, neurophenomenological method, uh, trying to link uh, first-person experience and third-person brain data. Um, and I think that that was the first real project I had some ownership over. Um, I analyzed data kind of co-mentored by Jake Davis and Kathy Kerr, um, and, and then with Judd and uh, Kathleen Garrison, who was his postdoc at the time, uh, you know, helped them bring it to publication within a few months. So it was, it was, that was really the first project I, I fully worked on, fully brought to the finish line. And, and it was great to just see that scientific process 
in motion. Yeah. And that that's so um, great that you were able to be exposed to neurophenomenology work, which is still, I would say, quite rare in the field to have a good neurophenomenology. So that's the idea of integrating first-person information with neuroscientific recordings and things like that. Can you say um, just briefly like what the goal of that study was and a little bit about what was going on there? Yeah. Ever since that study, I've remained really interested in, in neurophenomenology. I, I ended up doing my undergrad mm-hmm. thesis around the topic, and I'm still, it's still very r- ripe in what I'm working on. Um, so for that project specifically, uh, Judd, Judd had led this study where they had collected uh, neurofeedback data with meditators, having expert meditators uh, downregulate or upregulate activity in the posterior cingulate cortex, uh, this region that some hypotheses link to depression um, and potentially to a self-related narrative or speech. They had seen previously that activity in this brain region was downregulated in meditators, potentially upregulated in depression and some clinical symptoms. So it formed a really good candidate for a region to like, let's explore if downregulating this region has some link to meditation and further down the line, some clinical benefit. Uh, so, so for this study, they had expert meditators view a real-time display of activity from this region and then work on learning strategies to downregulate and upregulate the signal. And while viewing this display, they would, they would pause and describe uh, what in their experience was linked to either the signal going up or down. And so then based off of those descriptions of that link, we kind of ran a qualitative analysis approach and drew a descriptive theory of what in their experience was corresponding to down periods of activity and what was linked to upregulation. Right. So this is such a cool method. And now that you're describing it, I'm remembering that I think I actually was either part of that study or I came and helped pilot the the Mm. setup because I remember being in the scanner. And uh, so first, I guess, for listeners who aren't aware of the neuroimaging world, it's pretty unusual to be in an imaging scanner and be able to see your own brain activity in real time. It's a method that is you know, used more and more, but especially in those days, that was very early days for that kind of technology. So that's quite interesting. And then the idea is to, as I recall, there wasn't really much instruction about how to try to modulate the signal but you, you just try different things kind of mentally or experientially, and then you can see it, the signal change either up or down, and then you start to kind of learn. Um, so that's the basic process of neurofeedback. And am I remembering from that paper that one of the big take-homes was associating a, an experience of effort, like efforting with um, activity in this particular brain region, and then that, that might be part of why like reducing the effort is, is part of what happens in meditation? Yeah, so there, there was an effort element that we found there. So, so there, I think it was two elements that we saw were linked to decreased activity. One was just concentration, and so that was kind of a that that linked to existing literature that saw when that when people are focused on the task, activity there went down. Uh, but then this novel thing that popped up is that it also had to do with uh, states of low effort, uh, which which I think you know connects to the meditation practices where you just rest in awareness where you just, where concentration is just sitting back and letting go. And, and the presence is the presence that is always there. So I think that's, uh, that was really interesting to find, to pop out of this study. Um, it was a novel hypothesis. And, and yeah, like you said, it kind of uh, 
it connects to what people often discuss in meditation where maybe practice starts off with some effort, with some pushing, some holding the mind in place. Uh, but the place where we want to move to is the place where we are just resting in what is. And that, that doesn't require changing anything. So then this informed um, your own undergraduate thesis, which you went on to do more neurofeedback work. Do you want to share anything about that? Yeah, I became mostly interested there in the method side of things, uh, the, the idea of neurophenomenology. Uh, and that's kind of what I wrote my thesis around. Uh, so, you know, neurophenomenology is this idea proposed by Francisco Varela that in order to move forward towards a science of consciousness, we need to focus on a science that links together neurophysiological signals with data about experience, phenomenology. Uh, with, you know, with the rich history of the philosophy of phenomenology. The idea was that, you know, first, so far as we're ignoring lived experience, we have a very incomplete science of consciousness. Consciousness is first and foremost about experience. Uh, and second, that by linking phenomenological data to neural data, we're linking the experience to the machinery, the biology that gives rise to experience. And in terms of a method, we're, we're also creating a constraint so that whatever data about experience we generate uh, is linked to that brain data uh, in a way, making it easier to replicate, making it easier to relate across people so that I can potentially, if we have a, a link between an experience and a brain signal, uh, we can have some confidence that the experience we're talking about is similar or the same in nature because we have the same corresponding change in the brain signal. Uh, so I, I became really interested in this method, and so I still have uh, plans to to do an experimental study on on a model for neurophenomenology, building on what Judd did. to talk about um, some work that you did through a, a Mind and Life think tank project, a, a quite different project with ex-combatants in Colombia, um, bringing contemplative practice to them and other forms of indigenous practices, um, and then looking at outcomes to try to help them reintegrate into society after the, the peace agreement in Colombia. How did this come about for you? How, how did you get this idea to do this kind of project? Yeah, so this project in Colombia began around 2016, 2017. I, I, you know, I was still doing research at Brown. I was kind of just getting, getting some further training. And it was around this time that the Colombian peace process had been unfolding. Uh, Colombia re really had been in peace talks with the FARC, one of the main insurgent groups, uh, for quite a few years. And around 2015, 2016, it seemed clear that they were honing on, on agreements that would involve in large part the demilitarization of, of the, the FARC fighting force. Uh, I think at the time it was, it was well over 10,000 uh, members uh, that had spent decades uh, fighting an in, in insurgency, largely in rural Colombia, very mountainous jungle type of territory. 
this had kind of caught my attention. It was it was interesting just because, uh, you know, I think a peace process is always interesting. It was particularly interesting because this was in Colombia, in my home country, and uh, the instability there had always been present in my life. Yeah. How old were you when you moved um, to the States? Yeah, I was seven. My sibling was 10. We, yeah, we, it was like 98, 99. Okay. And so it was, it was one of the periods where things were heavier in Colombia, the, you know, mid nineties, mm. late nineties, early thousands. Um, it wasn't until the late thousands that there was kind of a, a shift in tide in the conflict, uh, kind of leading to the peace agreements in the mid 2010s. Okay. Yeah. So your childhood was very affected by this conflict. Um, yeah, I think it, the, the conflict and really the, the broader instability in Colombia uh, the instability in Colombia being linked to both the conflict and the war on drugs. Uh, that kind of just creates an environment that makes it easy for corruption, makes it easy for violence. And uh, my mom at the time was working uh, a government job where co-workers in her department were starting to receive threats more and more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had found herself in already dangerous situations. And she was widowed with my sibling and I. And I think just mm-hmm. she decided she couldn't be risking her life while she was in charge of us. Um, yeah, she took, she, yeah, so from there, she took the leap to bring us here. Uh, we landed in Boston, and, and that's where we then continued growing up. So it was kind of, you know, all, all of this made me interested in what was going on in Colombia. I was following just what I could read about the peace process. And it really caught my attention. I started noticing there was really interesting proposed support for the ex-combatants in, temp- in terms of trying to help them uh, return to labor, uh, like find housing, just return to civilian mm-hmm. life. And, and it caught my attention that in all of that, I wasn't seeing anything about mental health support. Um, mm. I, and I was, I was, it was kind of just a gap in what was planned. Uh, I think I think they in the end they did receive some government support, but it was very little by very few under resourced, understaffed people. And I think most ex combatants kind of just had occasional check ins with therapists. You know, I saw this. I, at, at this point, I, I'm familiar with a body of therapeutic interventions that could potentially be really helpful here. I know how they work. I know how they run. I know how they could be deployed here. And potentially I have a network of people around me that can help build those up. Uh, so from there, I kind of, you know, the first thing I did was call my sibling and, and we started talking about it from there. Uh, so my, my sibling, uh, Juliana, and I built the project up t- together f- from the beginning. Um, and one of the first things we did is, you know, along with, you know, starting to look for funding was uh, look for people that could support us. Uh, I think we, we recognized that, you know, maybe the idea is good, uh, but we are both very early on in our past, and maybe maybe we do have good intuitive skills, but let's get some more support. Uh, let's get therapists, let's get scientists, let's get uh, socially engaged workers, and, and let's get some more support. So we started kind of just uh, bringing people together. Um, one of the first pieces of funding we got was was the Mind and Life Think Tank uh, grant, and that that helped us to to really bring together people that could help us think about uh, think about the context, think, think about what type of support is feasible, and think about how to carry it out and, and research it. Uh, so I think that that meeting finally, that think tank meeting was in 2018, 2017. It's kind of like two years of unfolding to get there. 
my sibling and I started working uh, on putting together the curriculum out of that think tank meeting so that by, uh, I guess it was mid-2018, I, I moved to Columbia to start to roll the pro program out. And so uh, arriving there, uh, you know, we, we had some initial relationships with the government agency uh, in Colombia that had been managing the reintegration process, as well as with a, a local uh, Zen center that had been working with ex-combatants. Um, and so those were kind of our initial fronts to work on. But really, you know, the, the first period of time there was building deeper relationships to get this off the ground, putting together a team and, and piloting the program. So the, the first pilot we actually did was with our research team, um, which was a great way to also just bring together a team under kind of some a shared vision. So that then, yeah, I think by the time we were uh, kind of ready to run things, uh, the final piece that came together around late 2019, start of 2020, was a deeper relationship with the FARC community. Mm. Uh, originally, we had been working with this government agency to start to contact and work with the FARC uh, ex-combatants. Uh, that had been difficult, first because it's a government agency with you know many other responsibilities beyond helping us. And the FARC ex-combatants uh, seem to have mixed relationships with them and, and kind of uh, mixed experiences with them. They, there was kind of not always full trust. I think we started seeing that it wasn't the best avenue to reach through. And at one point, uh, we, we were able to just kind of start talking and building with the community itself. Um, and I think at that, at that point, so this was in early 2020, that we were finally kind of communicating with members of the uh, now the demilitarized FARC, FARC as a political organization. And, and the first thing was just kind of, a, they were very interested in this. Mm. Uh, so this was the response we got at the beginning. It's the response we keep getting this year. Uh, they recognize that they are under supported when it comes to mental health. It takes very little discussion with them for them to say like, we need something. We have gotten very little support and things are tough. So, so I think that was always good. It was kind of like, a, it was just, uh, first, just good to have them engaged and good to know that what we were trying to do was kind of a mutual interest and not just us coming in with this outside idea. Yeah, I know you said that one of your key learnings from this process is this long process of working with the local community and involving them in, in the project itself. I think I want to just reiterate that, yeah, one of the key learnings as we started was something people are more and more turning to in research, which, which is the use of participatory methods, where you work with the community you want to work with very early on to define what their intervention is, what it's studying, uh, how does it meet their existing, their, their actual needs, and how does it meet their existing resources. Uh, I think one of our team members in Colombia, uh, Paula Ospina, was excellent in just like saying that, we need to make this a, a concrete part of our approach. And, and, and she, she led a lot of those efforts. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it was vital to our work. Well, we, we continue kind of reiterating through that process as we move through it. And I, I'll just advocate for it being vital to anyone who wants to be doing research with communities like this. Yeah. I know you've also, as part of the curriculum, uh, I saw that you incorporated and, and centered and lifted up um, indigenous practices from that community. Can you share maybe, were they contemplative practices or I'm just curious what, what kinds of practices that you thought would be helpful? 
Yeah, from the beginning, we were interested in in not just bringing in uh, kind of mindfulness type contemplative practices, uh, but in incorporating uh, Colombian indigenous elements as well as having strong uh, liberatory pedagogy elements. The contemplative elements uh, we started building up through the pilot, where we got to work a little bit more closely with colleagues from a local university that has this wonderful program called uh, the Pedagogy of the Mother Earth. It's a PhD, master, and undergrad degree uh, at a a very strong university in Colombia that was crafted by indigenous community, uh, originally designed primarily for for indigenous uh, nation members, uh, but now open to general public. Um, Really beautiful program, just want to lift them up. And so we started working with one of the professors from that program. Uh, he worked closely with us in the pilot and helped us to think about what elements from from this tradition, from these traditions, uh, could be brought in. And, and we worked with a, a contemplative teacher uh, in our retreat as well. Um, largely, a lot of it is returning to how we can uh, do contemplative practices that really bring in ritual that connects us to land, to our ancestors, Uh, so that we are held in practice by all of this, so that we are not alone in our practice, but really resourced by these powerful elements uh, in the healing work. And so within this curriculum, is it still ongoing or, or how has it uh, unfolded? Yeah, um, so the, the, the curriculum is still ongoing. And I think we've had a, a few rounds of iterating through refining it. And, you know, potentially, you know, we can continue refining it forever. And I think it's good for programs to be flexible. We ran an initial pilot with our own team. Uh, and then we started running the program with ex-combatants in, in 2020. Uh, so, so it kind of um, coincided perfectly with the start of COVID. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah our first cohort was uh, scheduled to run uh, at the end of March. So it was completely disrupted. Uh, we, we had just recruited, like brought together a group. We had just collected all of the pre-data. Um, and we had actually already had our first in-person meeting the week before we went into quarantine. Uh, so we, we had a moment of just kind of a well, what do we do? Do we just kind of pause and wait? You know, maybe this is only a three-month pandemic. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, one of the people I was working with at the time was just like, no, let's just, let's just run it. Like, uh, let's, let's do it. Uh, we were still in those weeks in close communication with the participants. One of, our, one of the main co-facilitators for the program, uh, Luisa, was just kind of checking in on them. And she was reiterating that the needs are not lower now that the pandemic has started. Right. Yeah. Probably more. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with uh, the community is financially very vulnerable. So as soon as they couldn't go to work, as soon as they couldn't get basic things, uh, they were, you know, stress levels shot up, you know, along with the stress we were all experiencing at the start of the pandemic. Right. And so, so it was like, yeah, we, this could still be really important and, uh, it actually, you know, it seems like a lot of this we can adapt it to a virtual format. So let's let's try. Um, so we did that. Uh, I think, you know, it, we maybe only waited for three weeks. I think it was probably mid-April or late April that we started. 
And we ended up running two full cycles uh, with a, a kind of virtually adapted version of our program, um, which, was, which was great. I think we, we ran those two full cycles in 2020 during that kind of first year of pandemic. And then when things were a little bit more calm in Colombia uh, in January of 2021, we still ran the in-person retreat that they had been uh, kind of offered. They were still very excited to have that, that in-person retreat. Um, and it was it was fun and then rewarding to for everyone to just get together in person. Yeah, that's awesome. So, have you been able to? Um, I know part of your hope was to also do research on some of the outcomes. Have you been able to do any of that yet, or is that still forthcoming? Yeah. So, with, with that study, uh, we ended up having eleven participants. So, uh, kind of a statistically underpowered for a lot of quantitative measures. Yeah. Uh, but we still ran interviews with them. So, so we're planning to uh, put together something out of the, the qualitative data that came out of that, uh, that then we're using to shape and guide hypotheses for the next iteration. Any um, anecdotal outcomes that you want to share from some of the ex-combatants? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say that kind of a two, two fruits and just kind of a, a highlighted difficulty. Um, but I, I, think, I think first... Uh, the one big fruit was just the program as a vehicle for building community and for connecting them. Um, a lot of them already knew each other because they're involved with the kind of political entity that is now peacetime FARC. But 10 years ago, they were they knew each other as, as comrades in arms. Um, now they know each other as political comrades. Uh, they're very focused on political work. And what we've kind of seen is that this hasn't really involved space for emotional connection. Uh, they're not used to talking to each other about, you know, what's hurting and what's feeling good. Uh, and so creating that space was really valuable. Uh, that, that felt really important. And just, you know, creating that space and creating practices for them to find ways for it to feel comfortable and normal to talk about the difficult things and not just focus on getting things done politically. Mm. Uh, so so that, that was one big fruit um, that was present in the interviews. Uh, the other big one, um, they, they really enjoyed uh, the kind of more emotional, compassionate, compassion, loving kindness practices. Uh, I think like half of our program centers around those practices. Um, and, and they really honed in on part of the modules where we talked about how does this combine with processes of of grief, of rage, of confusion, shame, and how does this combine with uh, processes processes of forgiveness? Uh, I think this was really salient to them, uh, uh, kind of on two fronts. First, just seeing how not being able to engage with these uh, difficult emotions of grief, anger, shame, uh, just serves to process further. Um, it kind of just serves to keep us from being fully ourselves and being fully ourselves in a way that tends to challenge the status quo. Usually usually our, our indignation is guiding something. On another front, uh, they, were, they are very engaged in, uh, as part of the peace building process, they are very engaged in reconciliation work. They regularly meet with communities where harm was done and go through a reconciliation process mm. where they talk about it's kind of a, a true you know mirroring some of the truth and reconciliation elements of other processes they try to establish backtracking over what actually happened who did what 
and and try to come to some type of uh, reconciliation around that. Um, first, they were interested in how these practices might just be a resource for them and how they arrive to these spaces. Um, and second, they were a, a lot of these processes have focused on like, can this person forgive me or can I forgive this person? And they, I think it was almost a whole new concept, of like, can I forgive myself? Hmm. And I think uh, the self-forgiveness side of things was very salient uh, in part because of its novelty and in such a, a big container. And, and I think that was one of the things that also jumped out in, the, in their interviews. Um, so on, on one hand, um, it was useful just to get some data on what was working. Um, but it also tells us kind of uh, what some of the things we can focus in on the next iterations of the program are. Mm, yeah. Just as you were speaking, it, it occurred to me, uh, I'm wondering if you, when you talk about self-forgiveness and that, you know, not really being a concept. And just for me, I can imagine and, and some of my own experiences around that, too, of just like such a constriction in my body, you know, on a kind of energetic level around that. And that made me think also of Kathy Kerr's emphasis on the body. And I'm wondering if you brought any of that into this curriculum um, or if you have experiences around the role of the body in, in these types of healing. Uh, yeah, I, th I think uh, the, the body for them, for, for everyone was really present in, in this work with those difficult shadow emotions, the, the grief, the anger, the shame. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the forgiveness practices come in. Um, I think in, in every level of our shaping of the, the kindness, the land, the ancestor-based practices, um, it was always with a strong somatic focus. Um, I think, uh, you know, in this side, also drawing on kind of trauma-informed principles that if you don't intentionally make it somatically focused, it's going to unintentionally be somatically focused. Uh, and so the container needs to be shaped to, to be able to hold that. Uh, so it was very much present in the practices and the way they were, they were held. Yeah. Strikes me too, when you're speaking about the indigenous practices um, that you incorporated into this program, the indigenous Colombian practices, being connected to land and ancestors, which is also very similar to other indigenous practices and in other communities that, that I've heard about. And it's also just so salient how absent those kinds of practices are in the way that mindfulness has been taken up, at least in the U.S. community. Just wondering if you have thoughts on on that. Yeah, it's definitely really, really interesting uh, how it has been dropped away in, in the uh, U.S., European mindfulness communities. Um, and, and at the same time, something, you know, people seem obviously in need of. Uh, some, it's an element that was very present in the traditions. Um, sometimes I almost think that part of the problem was that it was too intuitive in the traditions, that it became underemphasized that mm. we do this practice first and foremost, kind of where we sit and where we sit is mm -hmm. with earth and land. Um, so I think, you know, we, the, the West with this kind of very cognitivist bias, uh, just focus on, on the mind and how can I train the mind? Uh, forgetting the body, forgetting the body that is the land. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, that's very interesting. I think it's, it is one of the paths for growth for, for mindfulness here. I think there's, there's many people working on that. 
Um, and I think a lot of people, as they work on that, are, are doing kind of as you as you named, uh, returning to indigenous practices that have always held this at the forefront. I feel like so much of your work is at this interesting intersection of uh, contemplative world and also equity and justice um, in those spaces. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that intersection. Um, you wrote something in the, in a piece about that project in Colombia, basically about your own recognition of, of how systems of oppression and domination basically um, create this distortion of self-image, you wrote, and a destabilization of, of connection and collective power. So I'm just curious to hear more about how you see um, systems of oppression distorting a self-image. I mm -hmm. thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, th this process, this distortion of self-image, um, it's present in Colombia, but it's not unique to Colombia. It's something that's present everywhere where we have systems of power that impact people in different ways because of their identities. Um, it creates systems where if the system is implicitly or explicitly putting some identities above others, it's, it's a wound to anyone that holds the identities that are being oppressed. Um, and beyond that, I think there, there's this excellent paper, it's called The Phenomenology of Whiteness, um, and it talks about the experience of being a person of color, uh, which I, I think the author hones in on just the kind of common experience of not being white, of being in a space where you are different than the others. Uh, I think the, the author frames one moment in her experience of being a Middle Eastern woman and stepping into uh, just entering customs in an airport in a U.S. airport, or it might, maybe it was European, but just that the moment where it becomes salient that you are not the dominant identity. Uh, I think uh, for, for myself, uh, in a way, being in Colombia doing this work brought that phenomenology to the forefront in how it eased away and how perhaps attention I was holding of being different in these spaces where I exist in the U.S., suddenly wasn't there. Suddenly I was in a sea of people where I, I didn't stand out and feeling that relax and ease away. Mm. Uh, that was really salient, as is always returning to the U.S. and even just the transition between one flight to the other, where suddenly I feel that difference. Uh, and sometimes it's a difference that can feel calm and fine, uh, but sometimes it can put you on edge. It can be an extra sense of unease you're holding, whether it's like fear or anxiety or whatever shape it might take, it creates this extra stressor you're kind of carrying around with you. Yeah, so I think that's that's one answer to your question. There are, you know, there are multitudes of ways systems of oppression work their way into our identities, uh, that they don't let us hold our identities fully. With the Colombian population, we were just talking about indigenous practices, but one way this shows up is the way their indigenous or African identities are held. Um, a lot of the people we worked with, a lot of the members of the FARC are, are either of indigenous nations or they're mixed or they're black Colombian. 
and these are, you know, the indigenous and black identities are very, they're, they're oppressed in Colombia. And, and it's a subtle racism because people are so mixed. But definitely what is valued is the closer you are in the spectrum to a European identity. That is what is most valued. And that's kind of uh, present in media and in how we treat and talk to one another. Um, so being able to just kind of name this and talk about how, how people have experienced this uh, was, was important and novel because that conversation was happening a lot here. Like, how is, what is it to have racialized identities? But it's not really happening in Colombia. So just introducing that conversation was important and working on ways in which we can, just kind of talking about how we can reclaim and hold those identities with love, with pride, with, yeah, in healthier ways. So I think that that's one dimension in which it was really important for for the ex-combatant population. And then the, the other way is just uh, their particular identity as ex-combatants. They are still very isolated from mainstream Colombian society. I think Colombian, you know, it was a conflict between government and this insurgent force. So as happens in any conflict, uh, you draw up the other faction as non-human, as evil, um, and so I think a lot of Colombians, uh, you know, grew in this environment where that was the image of the FARC. And a lot of them still feel themselves perceived that way. Um, and in the real world are met with violence around their identity. Mm. So I think, I think that was like kind of one of the other edges to work on. That's a difficult one for this program. I would say that one really extends beyond the scope of us working with them because really that's a healing process for Colombian society as a whole that needs to happen. Right. And I would imagine that that reconciliation process that you mentioned that's undergoing is a big part of that healing, hopefully. Yeah, I, ideally it is. Um, I, I, and, I, and I think for the specific communities uh, that engage in this, it, it is. Um, I think for mainstream, like for the people living in the cities, I think that's a little harder um, because cities are a bubble everywhere. I think we we feel that in the U.S. as well. Um, but perhaps because of the, I don't know, there there is a stronger social and economic divide in Colombia between city life and rural life. It's easier to be isolated and kind of have that bubble phenomenon in the cities there. Right, right. You spoke about this, I think, a little bit earlier uh, when you were speaking about the program and your work with the ex-combatants, but I'm curious your experience and thoughts about particularly the role of contemplative practice in the work of equity and justice. Like, what is it about the contemplative path? Does it enable particular things or certain skills or mindsets that are particularly valuable in, in justice work? Yeah. I, I really think it does. I, I think uh, perhaps the contemplative approaches have elements that other therapeutic approaches don't that help with that. I think first, just the approach that contemplative uh, methods can have on working with those shadow emotions. Some of the big ones being that, you know, rage, grief, and shame um, are so at the forefront of, of equity healing work, of, of diversity healing work. Um, from all directions, from, from people that may have been victims of oppression to people that might have been perpetuators of oppression. And, you know, CBT type therapies can help us work through perhaps unhealthy habits of mind, but these are really somatic, spiritual 
you know, for lack of a better word, they're existential emotions. Uh, they go to our core and they're not just habits of mind in that way. They are existential, you know, we feel them deeply. Um, and I think that's, that is where contemplative practices that can really engage with that depth of feeling, that depth of heart, um, might have a really important ingredient uh, to help with the deep pain of, of those emotions. Because um, I think, I, I, as many have stated eloquently, the big first and difficult step is just being present with all of that, being able to hold our imperfections with love and being able to hold our imperfections in messiness as well. I think that's one big way contemplative practices can, can really help us there. The, the other big way is in the opening up of our sense of self that comes with practice. The feeling, the you know, again, indigenous practices do a good job of bringing us to this shared ancestor and medium of Mother Earth, the shared lineage of ancestors. But I think contemplative practices have this other, you know, this is the other way they can help us with equity work by grounding equity work in in Mother Nature, in our ancestors, our, our shared ancestors. Um, in, in working with indigenous communities in Colombia, often I saw that one of the first questions that would be brought up in trying to open up a project was, uh, how can this benefit Mother Earth and how can this benefit the healing of our communities? Hmm. Uh, and I think that is a vital framework for how we do our equity, diversity, inclusion work, how we do that healing work. It both grounds us in this you know, mother figure that is loving and caring, but it grounds us in this mutual shared mission that really we're just trying to find a way to live together peacefully and live together in a way that we take care of our planet. Now you are in graduate school at MIT in the Brain and Cognitive Sciences program. So you're kind of back in the world of neuroscience and cognitive science. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what's most alive for you these days? What are you most interested in from that domain? Yeah, it's, um, it's exciting to be back in research full time. Right now I'm enjoying the experience. It's both challenging and stimulating. Uh, and I see just kind of a lot of cool paths in front of me. Um, I think just kind of r related to what we were just talking about this, about, you know, to the work I'm doing in Colombia, one of the questions that's kind of at the forefront here um, is how can, how can our basic science work have that socially engaged element? It's often really hard to, to see that, you know, if we're working on, you know, understanding the neural circuits underlying trauma in mice, how does that actually help us change trauma in the world? Uh, so, so I'd say one, one of the things that is alive right now for me is just the, the sitting with that question uh, and being present with that question. Oftentimes, I think basic science in its quest for deep rigor, which is vital, it's important, doesn't want to engage with these messy questions of society, of social relationships, of, of social problems. Um, but I think one of the things that has emerged in me from working in Colombia is wanting to focus on on peace, on 
on asking this question of what do we need at the individual, relational, and collective level uh, to build peace. Um, and so, so I'm trying to find that in, in rodent level work. That's, that's what I'm doing at MIT. Uh, but, but I'm trying to see how I can build from rodent level work to human intervention. I think right now I'm focusing in a little bit on how the factors in our environment, how things like stress, like violence, like resource adversity, uh, impair normal cognitive function. And, you know, how can understanding this better help guide how we heal? Uh, so I'm continuing to do the Columbia work while I do this rodent work here. And my what I'm sitting with is trying to see how these can become kind of a... A, a dance between one another so that the the physiological here can inform a very real lived experience there. I love it. I love that you're bringing together these worlds that, as you said, so often are completely separated, you know, as basic scientists generally don't engage with the, the messiness of the world because, you know, it doesn't fit the model or the, the paradigm of control and experimentation. And um, I think oftentimes work that happens in the world doesn't doesn't incorporate the scientific information as, as much. So I really love that you're bringing those together. And I think it's it's a beautiful flowering of, of all of your experiences so far in your life. Um, do you have any anything that you want to share that we haven't spoken about or any take-home thoughts? Yeah, I think, like I was just saying, the, this work in Colombia really helped me to focus in on this question of what are the conditions we need for peace? What do we need for peace as individuals internally with ourselves? What do we need for it in our relationships? What do we need for it collectively? This is kind of the question that I started to sit with in Colombia. This is the question I'm bringing into my my PhD. And I think uh, the the feeling that drives that is just this is this is urgent. Um, this is this is what we need to learn how to live with each other in a way that's sustainable, in a way that that is human, that is healthy, that we can be happy with a hundred years from now. Um, I think the the kind of going through this you know shift in culture that the pandemic kind of allows, it, the pandemic kind of breaks up culture so much that it allows us to redefine how we're returning. Uh, I think it really made this question feel urgent that if we don't dig into thinking about how we can live together well with ourselves and with our planet, um, we're going to be in trouble. Uh, I think we're we're seeing that today. We see that in kind of if we make our guesses of what the next 10, 20 years look like, we know we need tools for healing. We know we need tools for for building peace. And so I think I think that's you know just closing out. I think that's what's at the forefront of my mind, and I'm trying to see how the tools and opportunities I have at my disposal can help me move towards that question. But really, it's, I think, a collective mission we all need to hold. Uh, we all need to ask how, how are the tools and opportunities we have our, at our disposal able to help us understand this question and work on it together. Thank you so much, Juan. This has been really wonderful to chat with you. And um, your work is so inspiring. I'm so grateful that you're in the world. Likewise. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. It was fun to connect with you. And Mind and Life has been a great community and container for this work to grow within and throughout. 
So I'm always grateful for that. This season of Mind and Life is supported by the Academy for the Love of Learning, dedicated to awakening the natural love of learning in people of all ages. Episodes are edited and produced by me and Phil Walker, and music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.